Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Derek Fuller, and this is a podcast about strategic design. On today's episode, I am completing what has become a long-running series on strategic design by talking to Marco Steinberg. For those of you who have listened to the podcast for a while, will know Marco's name. He is a former architecture professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Design and was the founder of the Helsinki Design Lab, a strategic design team that was embedded in the Finnish government. I've talked to three other HDL members, Brian Boyer, Dan Hill, and Justin Cook. And Brian and Justin were also Marco's students at Harvard and went with him to Helsinki to to work. But they all cited Marco as a huge influence on their careers and work and thinking. And so I was really excited to finally have Marco on the show. Marco currently works independently on strategic design, primarily with governments, but also other organizations who need some kind of change or time to reflect on their own processes. So in this conversation, Marco and I talk about how he got into strategic design from working as an architect and a professor and what strategic design means to him and why that term describes how he thinks about his work and what his role is. We also talk about how clients engage him and how his practice has shifted from one where he was embedded within the government to now being an outsider tasked with helping reshape organizations from the outside. For those of you who have listened to the podcast for a while and to those other conversations with the former uh, Helsinki Design Lab team, know that strategic design is something that I have been really interested in. So I really enjoyed this conversation and kind of rounding out this series of conversations ar- around this topic. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that features behind-the-scenes content, links and articles from former guests about design and writing and criticism, as well as previews of upcoming episodes. Scratching the Surface is fully supported through these memberships, so if you like the show and want to help with its ongoing production, I hope that you consider joining. Thank you, as always, for listening, and enjoy this conversation with Marco Steinberg. You know, I talked to Brian Boyer, I talked to Dan Hill, I talked to Justin Cook, all people who spoke very highly of you. They talked about their time in Helsinki at the Design Lab. And so I've talked about strategic design. I've talked about a lot of the ideas that uh, you kind of work in and, and operate within. Uh, and so I kind of want to start this conversation by kind of trying to figure out and understand how you got to be the person that you are. <laughs> um, because I, I, I'm, I find the trajectory of your career and the, uh, the evolution of your work to be very interesting. And I want to kind of understand that better. So you originally studied architecture, right in undergrad? Yes, absolutely. Undergrad. And then I went on to grad school to continue and pursue architecture. Absolutely. And, and so if we go back to that, you know, that time in your life, what, how did you get interested in architecture? What was it about architecture that was interesting to you? What kind of career did you imagine for yourself then when you were 18, 19 years old? Yeah. I mean, I have kids now. My son's (laughs) 15, our daughter's 10. And when I think about when I was 18, my God, (laughs) I was pretty clueless. Yeah. Right. So I, you know, I, I don't think, to be realistic and honest, I, I, I didn't have a real clear sense of uh, even an idea about a career. 
I mean, there were things I had a passion for, and I'll avoid the Lego story, uh, but I, uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I will say that I, I did when I was in in, uh, in high school. I went to a, a British um, high school in Rome, so I did the British system mm. where you basically, when you're 16, you need to choose two, max three subjects, and I had a kind of passion for both art and physics and math, and I'm not going to oh, try, as I said, to do the kind of uh naive you know connecting the dots well that that means architecture but there was something in that landscape that interests me but i graduated when i was quite young i was 17 and i took a year off i came back to finland where where sort of a big chunk of our families from um and um i thought well you know it'd be either industrial design or architecture i'd kind of be interested in either one and and then there was an art, a very famous architect in the, in the Helsinki, uh, Riley and Reima Pietila, they were a sort of couple. And so I decided mm. in August of whenever that was, that I would ring their doorbell. And uh, <laughs> the wife opened the door nice. and kind of looked at me like, what the hell are you doing here? And I was like, uh, I'd like to come work for you guys. So she thought for maybe 10 seconds and said, come on Monday and make us some coffee. And so I worked in their <laughs> yeah. office for a year and uh, maybe to bring this uh, kind of entry into to kind of closure, I remember I sat down with uh, both architects later on that year and I was beginning to think about, well, would I, would I want to go and study architecture? And uh, this led me to RISD and doing my undergrad there. Um, and and okay. I remember I talked to Riley, who was one of the uh, partners there, and, and I said, you know, I'm kind of struggling between maybe industrial design or architecture. And she said, why would you ever want to do industrial design? Architecture is so much bigger. So then yeah. I was like, okay, that makes sense. So then I left for the States. And, you know, and it's been a lot of serendipity along the way. I, I can't claim that I, especially at an early age, ever had a vision of what I was going to do. When you knocked on that that architect's door, what was your perception of an architect? Did you have a good kind of understanding or knowledge of what architecture was when you when you did that? Um, well, you know, again, eighteen, uh, <laughs> limited cognitive yeah. power. I, I th probably thought I did, but I, I again, to be honest, I, right. I, my, my sense was that it was uh, an architect drew a lot, made models. Yeah, uh, you know, had interesting interactions with uh, craftspeople and built stuff. I, I didn't really probably understand all the other aspects that were involved or even aware of them, uh, that you actually right. negotiate things, that there are contractual issues, that they're financial and legal, uh, that there, there's a thing called regulations that you need to work within. You know, all of that was something that was just completely out of my, you know, uh, framework. But, but I, I, I do think I, I had a sense for the overall gist that it was, um, I'm a bit, you know, uh, I don't like using this word too much, but I knew it was a creative endeavor. Um, mm. And I knew that it connected sort of thinking, uh, coming up with ideas to the doing. And I think that's the thing that I always yeah. enjoyed was not just thinking yeah. about things and not just doing things, but thinking about doing new things. That always interests me. Right. I think that's probably the kind of core of an architect's sort of DNA or ought to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. I feel like I'm the same way. And and part of the reason that I asked that question is because when I think back to to myself as an 18 year old, wanting to be a graphic designer, and in many ways, I feel like I had a much better 
clearer definition of what a graphic designer was then uh but it was very oversimplified kind of like what you were talking about with with architecture and now in this field for 10 15 years my my understanding of graphic design is actually much more confused because it's so much bigger than I kind of thought it was. And I kind of had a sense that uh, it might be the same for you. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to the club. I think we're all, <laughs> you know, I don't yeah. know what wisdom brings with it. Uh, it certainly brings confusion. That's one thing it does bring. Um, and so, so you went to, you went to RISD and then did you go to Harvard right after, or did you work between? No, no, no. I, I, I worked in between and actually to kind of connect maybe the, the, the RISD Harvard trajectory, with your original question, I think the thing that was always clear to me in the back of my mind, I, I, I kind of repressed it in a certain way, was that I wasn't quite sure that I'd ever do buildings in a kind of odd oh. way. I, it, mm-hmm. it just seemed like some like too many bathroom tiles to design, you know, like... <laughs> Too much tedious yeah. stuff uh, for me, you know, yeah. and, and, and I'm not saying that it's, it's tedious stuff in a kind of empirical way, but it didn't quite fit my interest. And so I love the creative process. I love the making stuff. Um, but, but I think, especially the more I got into architecture, I had this kind of nagging feel. I don't know if, you know, I, I really like, this is what I want to do uh, with this education that I'm building. But yeah, I, I went to RISD and actually, you know, back when I was going to RISD, there was no thing called the internet. There was just the American right. uh, embassy library in Rome. So uh, I went with a friend to the library and you'd go there because they had this giant book, which had all the addresses of all the colleges in the U S. And so right. I, I went flipped through and I had like four or five colleges and RISD was one. I wrote an address down. Then I mailed a letter to them asking for a form. And then I applied to them. I, I had no clue where I was going. I mean, to be honest, right. I tell this story once in a while, but I was in Finland in that in-between year and, and then I was going to the US. It was my second, no, third time I'd ever been to the US. I'd been in 1977 and 1980 for just a few weeks on a summer vacation. Mm-hmm. So I left for the year, really, I left for five years. And so I leave Helsinki on a kind of chilly August day with all my yeah. stuff for the whole year. And it include my cross-country skis. And I land in JFK uh, Airport and it was, you know, it's like 120 with, you know, just hallucinating humidity levels. Uh, And I got an Amtrak train to Providence. And I actually realized when I got on the train that I didn't know where Providence was. And so I didn't know (laughs) if it was like an hour away or five hours away. And I remember trying to get my cross-country skis on the rack on the Amtrak train while everyone was staring at me. And then I had to keep myself <laughs> right. awake because I was afraid I was going to fall, be asleep when we got to Providence. But uh, RISD was fabulous. And, but the one thing I was really sure about when I graduated from RISD is that that was my academic like experience. It was great, but I'm never, ever mm-hmm. going to go back uh, to college. And then I came back to Europe oh, and I did my military service, worked um, in the design profession for two years, and I started getting this itch to actually get back into education. And that's when I decided to go um, or got accepted to Harvard and and, uh, and went for another two years. Oh, interesting. So that was, that was actually going to be kind of my next question, because you had mentioned earlier that y- you very early on kind of had this nagging sense that maybe you weren't going to design buildings and i was kind of interested in if that 
if you had that feeling, why did then you go back to school <laughs> to study <laughs> architecture again? But it was because you were interested in academia or interested in teaching in some way? No, I wasn't so much interested in teaching, but there was something about the learning aspect of academia that, and you know, the kind mm. of mental oh, I, challenge I and so on. And, and, you know, to be honest, this is why I mentioned I was repressing this, this feeling about maybe not ending up doing buildings because... Um, I, I didn't ask that question of myself. Well, why am I going back to grad school? <laughs> I just felt the yearning. I, I felt actually quite kind of like things were quite stagnating. I was in Rome for two years working for, for uh, no uh, furniture manufacturer. And, you know, there's some interesting stuff in it that like, you know, it was like tumbleweed morning and day in the office. And I, I, I just couldn't deal with it anymore. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about of kind of that wanting that pull to be in the kind of learning environment. Again, that was a big reason why I went to grad school. I feel like my entire career post grad school has been trying to keep that grad school experience mm -hmm. of kind of being a student learning. And so that's why I feel like I'm kind of doing all different types of things at once. And I get the sense that you're the same, same way. And then did you start teaching then right after? You finished at Harvard because so, you were then teaching at Harvard for 10 years or so. Yeah. yeah. So I taught at Harvard for 10 years. So I, not immediately, but I, but I ended up um, okay. in my, uh, so two years of doing my master's, it's a post-professional master's, but uh, so anyhow, uh, yeah, I, I was doing a research project around bending plywood uh, using mm. computer design and manufacturing processes. So back then I was really interested in the whole Charles and Eames uh, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you reinvent it with computers? Was so kind of the basic thing. So um, I've oh, done quite a, a lot of work on that. And uh, the graduate school design at Harvard was gracious enough to say, well, if you're interested in continuing some of the research, here is a bit of you know space. And, uh, and then I was doing a bit of TAing on the side. But I did start teaching at RISD, actually. Um, so mm, right after okay. Harvard, I TA'd a bit, did some research, and then within the next year, I, start, I was uh, at RISD then doing an architecture studio and an industrial design studio. And then I got uh, hired as part of the faculty at Harvard and stayed for 10 years. Yeah. So while, while you were teaching and kind of after this grad school time and i promise this whole interview won't just be a step-by-step -step <laughs> no, <laughs> no, 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 i'm just trying to understand absolutely understand how these things fit together um were you working as a architect or designer simultaneously or at this point had you kind of fully committed to the academic side no i i, I always enjoyed the practice side of things um but i was always okay. on the margins of sort of the the, the kind of mainstream architecture so uh, the research I was doing was in materials. So, so I was doing a lot of this plywood molded plywood, you know, molded plywood using computer design and manufacturing processes. Then I got interested in uh, lightings in the early days of LEDs. Uh, worked mm. with an Italian company, so I was doing a lot of uh, research uh, collaborations with industry. Um, which would be something probably that would be more in the kind of uh, product industrial design context than in an architecture school context. But, um, but I was running my own practice, so to speak, at the time when I was at Harvard, which was actually working with the performing arts. And uh, it's a bit of a longer story, so I won't bore everybody with all the details. But um, I, um, I worked in the museum field um, for a bit. 
I got an internship for the Peggy Guggenheim collection in, in Venice. And uh, serendipity had it. I met uh, Robert Wilson, kind of big name in theater, kind of modern theater. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and through him and meeting Bill Viola on the video end of stuff, I began to realize that a lot of people who are really thoughtful and amazing artists when it comes to putting those art pieces in a 3D context, like an installation, don't necessarily always mm -hmm. think about all the details. So I, I, I had the chance of working with Bill Viola and I was realizing, oh my God, this is how you build a space. I mean, it's quite crudely done. So I started thinking, yeah. oh, as an architect, I could actually resolve a lot of these details so that the environment is supportive of the artistic experience that Bill or anybody else was trying to do. So anyhow, so while I was at Harvard, I would say probably the for about seven years, I was doing this kind of stuff on the side. Merce Cunningham, Bill T. Jones, uh, Paul oh, nice. Kaiser in New York. Uh, actually, a lot of the work was through Paul Kaiser, an open-ended uh, group doing some fabulous, fabulous work on sort of digital art. So I was doing this on the side, certainly not doing buildings, but it somehow had a kind of art pressure. Right. And then what kind of, um, what kind of classes were you teaching at this time also? And how yeah. did those, did those have any connection to this kind of practice work that you were doing also, or were these kind of two separate tracks for you? Yeah, they were kind of two separate tracks. Um, late, later on in the 10 years at Harvard, those tracks started to merge and melt, um, but they were kind of two separate. So I was teaching for the most part, I think for like eight years or seven years straight, I taught a first year master student architecture hmm. studio. Uh, oh, so it's the introductory course for people who, you know, basically had little or some architecture background, but were starting their master's sort of trajectory. And I really, right. really loved it because it, uh, it did a couple of things. And this is why I like teaching so much is that I think to mm -hmm. teach, you need to constantly ask yourself to clarify things, to Right, yeah. uh, because you're going to have people who are yeah. super smart, much smarter than you. Uh, these are called students, and then they're going to ask you a whole bunch of questions, and you can't hide behind the jargon. So you know, it helps really to teach. Really helps you articulate and be clear. Um, so yeah. I, I really, really love that. And then, in addition to that, I was doing a, electives in. Um, in, in kind of uh, more the strategy end and uh, product design and product development. Mm. So the graduate school design at Harvard is really basically an urban design and architecture, landscape architecture program. It doesn't have industrial design, but I noticed right. back then that there's an increasing interest in the connections and why these sort of um, domains behave a bit differently. And so I, I, had a lot of teacher attend, uh, a lot of students, sorry, attend the, the selective that I was doing. And I yeah. realized there's a growing interest amongst students to understand why Apple products are the way they are, uh, why they right. differ from other kinds of products, uh, what are the business and other implications. And so this was what was getting me more and more into the kind of strategy end of things and away from architecture. And I mean, it sounds like that, that kind of strategy side was something that you were always interested in and maybe even back when you were kind of repressing this i'm not going to design buildings <laughs> i i i get a sense that that type of interest was there even back to saying should i be an industrial designer or a 
or an architect. And I think it's funny that the the architects told you, well, you should be an architect because that's bigger. And now I feel like the type of work you do is even bigger than that. <laughs> uh, and so there's this kind of constant uh, widening of, of uh, what you're working on and thinking about. So that was a very... Or that was a kind of slow burn, I guess, over the course of teaching that you were kind of moving in into this space because you ultimately, I, the question that I'm trying to get to is, what was that kind of intersection like where you leave Harvard to start the Helsinki Design Lab, yeah. basically, and kind of from the outside appear to completely kind of, there's like a hard turn of architecture is done. Now I am strategic design. What did that look like? And, and how did that kind of all come about? Well, I mean, um, it was, uh, it was actually a soft turn. I mean, I understand how, how it, 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 it looks like a hard turn yeah, and, yeah. and to some degrees it was in terms of the context I was in. So, you know, I was going from a very, uh, you know, uh, traditional architecture school. I, I don't, I don't mean traditional in the bad, bad sense whatsoever. I just mean that it's positioned to, you know, prepare students to enter the architectural profession. Uh, and from that context to go into a government context, yeah, the leap is huge, but, you know, connected a little bit to the, uh, the, 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 the question we were kind of thinking through earlier. Um, I think the 10 years at Harvard were really a self-education process for me, fundamentally. Mm. Because at the end of the day, there is no degree in uh, design and government. There's no school that <laughs> right. gives you a degree in design and government. And so what I had been doing, in a way, unwittingly unaware, was self-educating myself. And actually, because I was constantly doing things that I really had little knowledge of, um, I, I mm -hmm. think I enjoyed the most the process of trying to self-learn. Um, right. And so that became hugely useful. Uh, so uh, 10 years was a kind of a self-education process that got me to the point where actually this was a very natural next step. And the second thing was, was actually an initiative that I've been working on, which was a project called the Stroke uh, Pathways Project, which was looking oh, right. at stroke care. Right. Um, cradle to grave as a kind of uh, systems uh, uh, challenge. And, uh, you know, if from a designer's perspective, how would you redesign care to be more aligned with its end objective? And, uh, and being involved mm -hmm. in there, I, 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 uh, I had an advisory group, uh, which was I, I, I used to talk about having a Noah's Ark. Um, you know, you, you can't you can't connect with everybody who is a stakeholder in a problem, but you can kind of select the representative right. animals um, to be there. So we yeah. had the CEO G Healthcare because G was doing the top imaging equipment for dealing with stroke. We had one of the top uh, you know neurologists in the country because it affects the brain. Uh, we had people, you know, we had the head economic advisor for Obama because the policy economics and so on is is important and. I'd invited the former prime minister of Finland uh, to be one of those mm. advisors. And, and so one day he, he, he called me uh, after probably about three years uh, sort of seeing the project evolve and said, you know, that design stuff you're doing at Harvard, you know, we would need that here in government. So would you like to come over? And I turned around <laughs> to my wife and we had, I think it was probably about a seven minute conversation. And then I was like, yeah, sure. I'll pack my bags. We're coming. Uh, so, um, and, and then oddly enough, when I was in yeah. the U S, um, 
I, I, I love the U.S. Um, I miss the U.S. And, and I, you know, I, I, I need to make it clear the U.S. I was living in was a bubble, of course. Uh, but within that right. bubble was right. an incredible intensity of ideas and people and, and stimulation, which, quite frankly, I miss to, to mm. this date. Um, so, but I always felt like I was there just temporarily as a student. You know, I ended up living 15 years in the U.S. So, so when the call came, it was like, it's time to come back home. I was like, oh, yeah, of course. I've just been here temporarily. So, so that's why I said it's, it, it, it ended up feeling like a soft turn. I definitely talked to Brian about this at length. And I think I talked to Dan quite a bit about it. But can you talk about that term strategic design? Is that something? Was that a term that that was kind of in the air? Did you have models to look at when you started thinking about this idea of strategic design? How did that all come about for you? Well, um, so when I was doing this, when we were doing, because Brian was involved too, and Justin was involved too, because they were both at Harvard at the time in the Stroke Pathways project, I uh, was uh, frequently asked to present to, you know, policy people and a whole bunch of people outside of the kind of design domain. And I had to try to explain, I mean, actually, this is, it was, what we were doing was difficult to explain to both the non-designers and to the designers. Um, And and in an odd way, (laughs) it was more difficult to explain to the designers than the non-designers. But I was struggling for for the five years that we were doing, the four years that we were doing the stroke project to kind of describe what is it that we're actually doing? I mean, what do we call this thing? And, and, And I remember early on, I used to use terms like systems. You know, this is a systems approach or design approach to systems. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. I, I, it never really sat quite well with me. Uh, a lot of the work we were doing was also collaborating with people at MIT and other organizations. And like systems was a term that was already like, you know, trademarked, trademarked and copyrighted yeah. and, uh, you know, owned and legally, whatever, X, Y, Z. And it was just like, <laughs> Every time I use the word systems, people are yeah. like, are you talking about systems engineering or engineering systems? Those are two completely different things. I'm like, oh, oh really? And so uh, right, I, I right. started to say, you know, why be shy about the word design? And, and then I quite yeah. for, for a while started to say, well, actually, what we're doing is we're using design in a strategic capacity. We're not trying to use design to <laughs> shape a product. While, while we may end up shaping a product and a service, yeah. actually the bigger question is how do you make strategically shape uh, mm-hmm. you know, how you deliver healthcare? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, mm-hmm. But it actually boiled down to the, the, a very specific moment in time because uh, when our former prime minister in Finland made me, gave, you know, called me and said, you know, we need that design stuff here in Finland, uh, we had a very short conversation uh, around my contract. Then he said, well, you know, mm. what's your title? And I was like, okay, that's a good question. So said, why don't you give it a thought? And, and then I, I remember writing down like, you know, I'm going to make stuff up now, but it's like, you know, uh, design uh, big stuff. Uh, no, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, government design yeah. lead. And I was like, ah, you know, none of this makes sense. And then I was like, all right, it's strategic design, uh, which I'd been kind of mm. using on and off, um, in, depending on the audience that I had been speaking to earlier. So strategic design. Now, yeah, there the was I learned later uh, the, the the term being used, especially in some countries, like in Finland, it was being had been used. I think in the eighties 
uh, but it was more about oh, branding and advertising. And I remember actually having a conversation with um, a former faculty member at the university here in Finland. And I said, you know, I don't think that term is very good because it's, it's really about business. And I was like, no. Right. And actually, when I've been testing this term out in front of, you know, policy people and government people, it seems to resonate. So I was like, I think we're just going to stick with strategic design. So that's not to say that other people weren't talking about strategic design, but I was completely unaware. I had to put something on paper at that point in time. Well, you said something else that I thought was interesting in there that, you, the, the, where you said, you know, why don't I just embrace this word design? What is it about that word design that was so interesting to you or felt right in this context? What is, I mean, <laughs> I guess the question is, what, what do you mean when you say design? <laughs> well, that's, that's a good question, right? <laughs> and and uh, yeah. my, my, my preamble to that would be to say that whenever I work in government, uh, if I'm working with people for the first time, I won't use the word design. Because the next thing that oh. happens is like, well, what do you mean by design? And I'm like, okay, let's not get it caught in the weeds yeah. here, you know, let's, so I like to have conversations about what is it that you're struggling with? You know, what are we trying to do? And then you back yourself into design. But back then, I, you know, design's kind of funny. And, and I think it, it's reflected in the, both the, the, the profession and both the education system. If you look at, take Harvard, for example, and you look at um, how mm-hmm. the graduate schools are positioned, there's a kind of pecking order there. Uh, and, and the pecking right. order starts with the biggies, which are like the business school and the medical school, and they kind of end mm-hmm. with, I, I hope nobody takes any offense, but with like <laughs> the divinity school and the design school in that order. Uh-huh. And, and, and so there's a kind of, yeah. a kind of timidness sometimes mm. that I think is actually, mm-hmm. you know, there's two sides to a coin. That timidness is the arrogance of design too. So I think some, some in some context, people feel like they really need to like, you know, put on the full colors of design because we're going to be proud to be designers now and we're different. Um, but when you go into a new right. context, there is a, a tepidness about that. And I think we, we had a little bit of that. In fact, when we were working and looking at hospitals and care, people would say usually, oh, designers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Come take a look at it. We just renovated our bathroom, you know. And we're like, no, not that kind of design. We're talking more like policy and strategy so you you would get that response that people thought design was beautification but then i began to realize that when we were using the word design it it, it, people were like high up high up i'm talking so just to give you a bit of context you know these would be people in the pentagon you know uh Mm -hmm. leading neurologists in the u.s and, and and people of that caliber when they heard that we were designers and we would say like half a sentence, we're trying to take a, you know, a design approach to the system of healthcare delivery. They would go, oh yeah, Mm. we get it. In fact, just to maybe build on that, uh, a a story that both Justin and I were, were, were lived. Uh, We were down in in Houston, uh, in in Texas. And and we were uh, meeting the preeminent uh, neurologist in in the U.S. around stroke. Um, And we were in the elevator, Mm -hmm. I remember, and he said, you know, Mm -hmm. he's been working to try to put a stroke system together. He was kind of the leading medical policy person in the U.S. Uh, And he said, you know, I'm so happy to see you guys because for 20 years I've been trying to help build a system without really any of the system skills. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. he literally told us he's been waiting 20 years for people like us. 
And, and that's when I think huh. gave us the confidence to like, you know, this is something new. So sure, we don't know exactly what we're doing, but there is certainly a uh, strong calling for this kind of work. Something, something that strikes me about that story and about your work basically after you go back to Helsinki and, and your career since is the kind of centrality to government in your work and, and you kind of talking about strategic design specifically for government. And I'm, I can't say that I've talked to many people who are operating a practice like that. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested in why you've decided to focus on government and what you think, why you think government is a thing that needs to be redesigned. And I'm asking that question, like, obviously, I know government needs to be redesigned. But I'm kind of curious how, how you found yourself in that space and why that's, that's the area of your focus. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think, and, and, and this is kind of post-rationalization, of course, you know, one's in this moment in yeah. career. And so you can kind of look back and say, well, you know, that kind of makes sense described in these terms. And, and the terms that I would sort of say is that, first of all, the challenges that governments are most vexed by um, are complex, multidimensional kinds of issues. that actually design mm -hmm. is quite well positioned, not necessarily to solve, but to contribute mm -hmm. to the to the advancement of you know to to the, and 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 I think actually without a design sort of skill set in that mix, um, traditional skill sets struggle very much. I mean, we see it in sort of how governments behave. The other end of the, the sort of other part to the uh, to my answer would be to say that governments own the kinds of challenges that I think. Uh, I think at least for me was what got me interested in architecture, the public nature of architecture. Mm. Um, right, so I've, right. I've, you know, I, I respect all my colleagues and friends who work for businesses and I think it's amazing and we need that. But personally, I, I, I find that a, a context that if I try to imagine working in, I, I would struggle. Uh, and there's something that really lights <laughs> the fire in me when I'm thinking about, uh, you know the the public good, um, and uh, yeah. and 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 that. So, when we think about architects doing public buildings, it's that same sort of deliberative process that that balancing that 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 multi dimensional sort of endeavor, uh, which is both short term and long term, which which mm -hmm. is which is exciting, and it's very different than working for say a private client. Yeah. Okay, well, I, that was that was exactly what my next question was because you kind of started in this space working within a government, and now you are operating your own company where you are kind of consulting and working with clients who are, from what I understand, largely governments. How how is that relationship different? Where you are now an outside person, yeah. how does that change how you think about this? Or or, or Maybe a better way to ask this question is, what do those engagements look like? So I, I, I think the, um, not to get too militaristic here, but the mission is okay. the same, okay? Right, um, right. But it's your relationship to the mission that's different. And um, so maybe now I'll play on the military analogy here and say that I feel that I am a bit of a mercenary. 
um, mm. meaning, and, yeah. and I hope some of my clients who may or may not be listening to this take no offense. I mean this truly in a positive, constructive way, but frequently <laughs> myself and others in my same position are in a way mercenaries because we're called upon to do the dirty work that the organization can't do or doesn't want to do. And then if in a way that will, that's what mercenaries okay. do is they fight the dirty wars that, you know, right. the traditional army <laughs> doesn't want or, or, or people in the country don't want. And, and, and because at the end of the day, uh, design, when we're talking about in an innovation context where design is used to create new kinds of solutions and new kinds of ideas is always going to be ideological. Um, uh, there is this idea right. that innovation right. is purely technocratic. No, that's BS it's always going to yeah. be ideological. Yeah. And, and in that sense, a lot of the work to innovate, to change, to transform the current public sector, which is really stuck in an 18th century kind of framework, uh, is going to be mm. ideological and sometimes impossible for the organization itself to take upon for political reasons, mm. uh, for other kinds mm. of mm-hmm. reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also the, the, the challenge of being on the other side and being a consultancy relationship is the kind of, uh, the kind of uh, procedures, the, the kind of the procurements, um, the kind of business logics of government, which I don't know, just really aren't in the public, aren't, you know, in support yeah. of the public good. <laughs> Uh, it's very funny, actually. I find yeah, 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 yeah. that the whole idea of public procurement is a very positive one, but it actually ends up shooting itself in the foot. Uh, so government spends more money <laughs> in the dumber ways, but with apparently more transparency. You know, okay, that's a trade-off, I guess one can make. Can you talk more about what I have? I have two questions, and I hope I hope these questions make yeah. sense. I'm not sure I can articulate them in a clear way. The first one I think will make sense. I'm curious about what when when a government comes to you and say we want to hire you as a consultant what kind of problems a what kind of problems do they have that they're coming to you for or or b or somewhat related why do they think they need to to come to you for help or what are they kind of asking for and then the the opposite end of the question is what are you specifically kind of bringing to that that relationship mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's hard to generalize, but I'll do it because it's it's fun. Yeah. But um, I think, <laughs> and, and and I'm erring here on caricature. So, but but it frequently okay, the engagement okay. is the following: um, I might get an email or a call. We're doing an event in April. We're looking for somebody to kind of you know think outside the box. We hear you live outside the box. So, you know, could you come and do a talk? So I'm like, sure. So, you know, what do you want me to talk about? So then we start chatting a bit. And, and then after that conversation, they're like, well, this is kind of interesting. Um, so, yeah, why don't you mark that thing in your calendar? And can we have a follow-up call? And I'm like, okay, okay. Then we have the follow-up call. And they say, you know what? We were thinking a little bit about what we were talking about. And actually, we would need a little bit of help just maybe working with our teams a bit. Um, so could you give a talk and work with our teams a bit? Mm. Yeah, sure. They're like, okay, could we have a follow-up call? Then we'll have the third call. And they're like, you know, we've been thinking about this a little bit. I, I, we, we'd love you to give that talk and work with our teams a little bit, but we also would like, uh, you know, some strategy work with our, and, you know, by the seventh call, we were like, okay, you know, um, 
and there's an engagement that's completely different than where it sort of started off. So it's a bit of a caricature, right. but it, it, it's actually rooted in reality. So, it, you know, but, uh, but, but I think it's representative of the fact that uh, I think a lot of the public sector is uh, under a lot of stress. Uh, I mean, you know, mm -hmm. take mm -hmm. the whole U.S. context and the Trump administration. So, <laughs> so there's a lot of political stress. There, there's a lot of austerity stress, too. Um, and, and so on. And the day-to-day -day work of public servants is, you know, can be quite stressful. So the, the, the machinery doesn't have much time to stop and ask itself, what does it need? And so sometimes these engagements that are just like, oh, come give a chat, raise a conversation that should have been had 10 years ago. Right. Um, and, and that kind of leads to, to the work. But the, the challenge doing this work is that there is no line item in government budgets to do design work or innovation work. So once you light up the fire that, you know what? Yeah, it's true. We, it is 2019 and the world has changed. Yeah. Then the next thing is, oh, but can you do it for free? Because we don't have a budget for it. <laughs> right. right. So. That's, right. that's part of the challenge. Okay, I see. That make that makes a lot of that now makes a lot more sense to me about kind of. <laughs> I guess that that last series of questions was me trying to understand what it is you actually do, um, <laughs> and how how clients come to you. And now now I get it. Like that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, let me just interject a little thing because uh, you know you, you mentioned at the, at the top of this uh, our conversation that I uh, you know you, you've had uh, you've talked to uh, Brian Boyer and Justin Cook and Dan Hill, who I've had the huge honor to work with uh, in the past, but specifically uh, Justin and Brian, you know they've and, and, and again this goes slightly in the human uh, humor department, but they were accusing me when we were working at the fund for ruining their careers. Uh, because, you know, we're doing something that is not a career. There's no profession, you know. Um, but but the, the other side to this was that I think it was Brian that was saying that his family was, um, was uh, you know, convinced that he was a spy because he could not explain. And I have the same problem. I can't explain to people what I do. So, you know, yeah. so you, you're working for a foreign government. You travel a lot, you know. What, what could it be? You can't explain what you're doing. Of course, you're a spy. So, so I'm right. happy that at least oh, that's amazing. we've been able to build a, 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 a little bit. But it's very difficult when you're when – you, and this, this is the, the kind of oddity of all of this. When we were doing that stroke work early on and we realized that people way up in Washington uh, were struggling with healthcare and really understanding how you could transform healthcare to something completely different. They just didn't have the, the, the skills and design. They had the aha when we were talking to them. So there is a huge need for design to get involved mm -hmm. in shaping decision-making, but there are no schools. There is no uh, career path. There is no profession. So, and there are no line item right. budgets uh, in governments to do this work. So that is the kind of, let's say, challenge right now is how do you begin to sort of structure some of that? Yeah. How, I mean, that's, how do you do that? <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, that's kind of a, a, a joke question, but I'm, I was actually thinking about the, you know, Brian and Justin saying that you've ruined their careers and that this is a very... Um, 
this isn't necessarily an industry or that there are a lot of people doing this. And where do you see this type of work going or how could this be expanded or how could more people kind of, you know, who are interested in this get involved or engage in some of these, uh, some of these issues that you're talking about? Yeah. Well, I, I think in a certain way, a lot of this stuff is in the early days. So mm-hmm. I, yeah. I think a lot of the learning is happening in the field. So for anybody who's interested, and, and I get this a lot from uh, students or, or practitioners who are interested in getting involved in government, just figure out, find a way to get involved in, in government work, uh, you know, whether it's through a <laughs> summer internship or, you know, uh, do a grassroots effort, um, work with an NGO that's working with government. I don't know. Just get experience. Because actually, the experience will help you um, be able to provide something and build the connections that are necessary yeah. that aren't readily available um, out there. I mean, I, a funny yeah. thing, when I was at Harvard, um, and I think it was like probably in year eight of my 10-year stay there, there was a, one of the top magazines in the U.S. had a um, rankings of the top design schools in the US and I was flipping through it and I was like, oh, Harvard's in it. And I was like, but it wasn't the design school. It was the business school that was ranked as the top <laughs> design school. So I remember I, 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 I went to, the, to our dean and I was like, have you seen this? And, and I remember just generally when I was going around the hallway and asking yeah. my, my faculty colleagues, have you guys seen this? Like everyone's like, yeah. what, what about it? I'm like, what do you mean what about it? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that was symbolic of the fact yeah. that uh, there is this huge ask for government uh, for design that is a different kind of ask than what the professions, uh, the schools are preparing for, the traditional professions. And it's mm-hmm. the other schools that are maybe a bit more nimble because they don't have a vested interest, they don't have a legacy in design that are able to actually move on it. And it's been the designs, uh, the business schools that have popularized, right. you know, the, the design thinking term which I actually right, don't right. like personally because for me, design is so yeah, much yeah, yeah. Same. Me too. the connection of the thinking to the doing. Um, and I know that it seems like right. an oversimplification, right. but it's a huge distinction from how it's talked uh, in terms. So uh, my, my big dream back at Harvard was if the Kennedy School, which is the School of Government and the Design School, could work together to make a program, that could be something quite interesting. I think eventually it'll happen once there's more and more sort of momentum um, in this field, I see a lot of people self-educating. I see some nonprofits starting to create programs. I'm working with Nesta, which is a UK-based sort of innovation agency, and they uh, I've been helping them with uh, States of Change, which is kind of like a a training program for governments. Uh, so there's those kinds mm-hmm. of initiatives oh, cool. uh, that are taking ground. Um, and I think there was something else I was going to say, which was going to be really insightful, but I can't remember right now. But we'll, we'll <laughs> okay. see how this landscape uh, shapes itself. But I, but just yeah. maybe to conclude yeah. that, one of the things, and, and you know, huge, uh, you know, uh, thanks go go to the team, and and, and 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 I think Brian was quite instrumental of of all of us in doing this, is to make sure that. As we in practice uh, doing these new kinds of things do work, that that work needs to be public so that others can learn from it because there's no available textbook out there 
to learn from. So I, I think there's an obligation for all of us to make the work public. Let me ask you the, the, the kind of opposite side of that question a bit. Um, going back to the beginning of this conversation, talking about studying architecture, what from that education do you think has been helpful or instrumental in the work you're doing now? Hmm. Um, so many things. Uh, if any, I, mean, okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I think it is at its best, uh, an amazing education uh, process. I think that, you know, if I had to highlight a mm. few things that I think are really quite instrumental, first of all, the whole idea of a studio, I think, is, is kind of at, at the right. core oh, of that. Yeah. Um, you know, both being in a studio as a student, but also teaching a studio is, is fantastic. I mean, one of the things I used to do when we teach, and it's not just me, but like <laughs> it's standard practice, it would be to, you know, give 12 people in a studio uh, the same simple task. And you would notice that you would get 12 variations on a theme or, or 12 yeah. interpretations or 12 different themes off of the same question. And then if you ask each right. one of them to do, you know, four, you have 48. And what's amazing about that, very quickly, you can begin to generate a whole range of different interpretations based on the same question. You can build almost like a taxonomy mm -hmm. of possible ways of framing that question. And when you do it as a kind of group, uh, you know, we're, we're all limited by our pa uh, past experiences. Um, and, and, and yeah. so our ability to think about or conceive of things that in some way or another are not part of our lexicon of experiences is almost virtually impossible. And so that's the beauty of having 12 different people coming together. So I would say the studio is an amazing way of expanding things. Um, I love also in the education process that the com combination of theory, sort of technology, and the process of design. Mm -hmm. um, and I think especially mm -hmm. yeah. in architecture, uh, where the history, theory, technology component come together, it gives you a very well-rounded way of thinking about things, which I think when you go and, you know, skip forward into a context of government, that's exactly the kind mm -hmm. of uh, sort of multidimensional thinking you need to do. You know, what's the theoretical basis for assuming that a different approach can lead to a better solution? Um, what is the cultural and historical context in which you're operating and what are some of the techniques and technologies that can enable that to be able to put that together as a complete solution is kind of the, the, the process of architecture. So I, I like that sort of 360 uh, whole approach um, and the studio. I think probably those are, are, are two of the things. Um, and yeah. I, I love yeah. drawing by hand. As maybe some people mm. can attest to. I, I used to be a bit of a, I, I mean this in the most positive way, but a bit of a pencil drawing <laughs> Nazi um, in the sense that uh, I thought it was, and I still believe it's an important skill to learn, even in the age of computers. My last question, and, and this is kind of a big question, but this is the question that I used to end all of these conversations. I'm kind of curious, what are some of your favorite books or favorite authors? Uh, who are the people that you kind of read to read, uh, read for as models for all of this that we've been talking about for the yeah, last hour yeah. or so? So, so actually, I'm going to say something really sad, and then you can choose to either erase it and kind of, you know, <laughs> <laughs> help me keep up a facade or or then reveal the truth but 
I, okay. I, I have so little time to read these days that it's really sad. Mm. It's pathetic. But but there was a day when I used to read, uh, and I and I hope I can come back to the, that day. I'm, I'm working very hard. So 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 the the truth is is that I very rarely have the opportunity to read. Um, but that's not to say that I haven't read. So I will answer your question. I think when we're talking about this work, and it will sound a bit like a cliche because undoubtedly a lot of the people who are kind of in this genre will point to the same things. But you know, you got. Papanek, um, Victor Papanek's um, books. Mm-hmm. You've got mm-hmm. um, oh, Buckminster Fuller um, and his writings. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I think there is something that happened back then that if you read some of those texts, I mean, it's like time has yeah. not moved. It's, it's pretty uh, spooky yeah. in a certain way. And it's also, it's huge testament to their ability to think way above and beyond the kind of normative. I think something yeah. that we, we are increasingly struggling with doing. Uh, but then there are also other kinds of people who maybe aren't, they're close to that mainstream, but not quite in, 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 in it. People like Norman Bel uh, He was a, an industrial designer and there's a book called Magic Motorways. Mm. And it, oh, I don't yeah, know it's, that. it's a pretty fascinating book. I actually, one of the last things I did in the US is I found an original copy uh, online and I bought it. Oh, nice. so I bought original copies of all these books that that for me have been quite you know important. Yeah. And Magic Motorways uh, talks about um, it lays a vision of uh, how the automobile will transform the U.S. Uh, and uh, he lays out mm. a kind of system of three kinds of roads. There and I forget what they're called, but there's basically the kind of uh, you know, scenic kind of road. And so he draws this kind of squiggly. And the, the purpose of that driving is to see places and to be fall in love with the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum is the motor highway, whose purpose was uh, to get you from A to B as quickly as possible. And when you read that book, right. it basically outlines what happened in the U.S., uh, when you read Norman Bel uh stuff, he talks about what is the role of the designer. Uh, here we're talking about Futurama, I think 1939, uh, the World's Fair. And a lot of these designers mm, were involved yeah, yeah, yeah. in a very strategic capacity to actually help position a new vision of the future, which is really trying to compete right. with the war that was going on in uh, in Europe as a kind of an alternative. Yeah. And, uh, and it was interesting how these people who are, for the most part, trained as um, a lot of them did window dresses for the department stores. So they, they had a kind of panache for the drama. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he talks about the role of design is to, you know, distill complex ideas so the masses can understand them. Something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it sounds mm-hmm. maybe in, in 2019 slightly condescending, but I think if you try to understand what it what he's articulating is this idea that there are very complex things that until you give it form, uh, most people will yeah. won't be able to see quite literally. And then it's the role of the designers to help people see uh, not just what the questions are, but the possible futures. Uh, and that's what Futurama was very much about. So that work was fantastic. Then I don't know what happened in between. Uh, but I think we're beginning to revisit uh, some of that. And I think what's interesting today is that we're, we're a bit of it is kind of 
I'm not good on words, so I'm going to make up a kind of semi-term, but it's kind of like um, researchy, hipster-ish kind of um, mm -hmm. semi-science mm -hmm. and uh, semi-narrative kind of work <laughs> um, but it, that is yeah, yeah, rooted yeah. in facts. And the reason why it's a bit mm -hmm. hipster and it's a bit narrative is that I think some of the facts that are rooted in reality, and that's what a fact kind of, I guess, is, <laughs> uh, <laughs> are maybe exaggerated or are built around a, a specific kind of narrative. But there are books like I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm revisiting right now, Habit, um, that you know talks about sort of the science of habit from individual oh, yeah. organizations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you look at some of that, it's fascinating. And so uh, yeah. we're, we're, you know, we're beginning to get into this era where we're looking at facts and data and sort of a new kind of science and building new narratives. And I think we're stitching it to this legacy that was really important. And, and, and now we have some of the behavioral insights yeah. uh, at an organizational level to try to think about, and this is a lot of the work that I do at the end of the day, is how do you uh, build a logic for an organization that's able to do to fulfill a different mission uh, because if you if, if you right. you know I, I got enamored early on when I was 18 where we started our conversation by the object by the yeah. beautiful objects and then you go to school and you're like oh there's a beautiful process you know behind right. the object right and then when you start getting involved you realize no there's got to be a beautiful DNA in an organization that enables a beautiful process that ends with a beautiful product Right. So for organizations yeah. to fixate on the shiny object is, is, is irrelevant. They need to start fixating on what's the nature of work. And in that sense, my right. work nowadays is very much about trying to design new logics in public organizations that are capable of then mm. delivering new kinds of mm. solutions. Um, so that's why I like this kind of quasi science that's emerging. Um, with the, the 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 legacy of the people like Norman Bell Getty and all, I love that. I feel like that, I feel like that was a perfect way to kind of wrap up this entire conversation too. Marco, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I enjoyed this conversation immensely. Uh, really love how you think about this and the work that you're doing. So thanks for your time. Thanks for being on thank the podcast. You. It was a real honor. Uh, really enjoyed it too. Thanks. This episode was recorded on July 18th, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.